Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Back in Daniel chapter 9 for one more time, just for the sake of keeping this all in context, back up to verse 24 and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Two men are seated in a plane. The first man is given a parachute and told to put it on because it would improve his flight. He's a little skeptical about this because he can't see how wearing a parachute in a plane could possibly improve his flight. After a little bit of time, he decides to experiment to see if the claim is true. He puts it on, and right away he notices the weight of it on his shoulders. He struggles to sit upright, but he figures it's worth it. He was told the parachute would improve his flight. He decides to give it a little more time, but he begins to notice that some of the other passengers are laughing at him because he's wearing a parachute and a perfectly good airplane. He starts to feel humiliated. And then they point, and they laugh at him even more. And finally, he can't stand it anymore. And he slides down in his seat, unstraps the parachute, and throws it to the floor. At this point, disillusionment and bitterness set in, because as far as he is concerned, he was lied to. The parachute didn't make his flight any better. A second man was also given a parachute, but listen to what he was told. The second man is told to put this parachute on because at any moment he'd be jumping out of the plane at an altitude of 25,000 feet. He gratefully puts the parachute on. He doesn't even notice the weight of it upon his shoulders. He doesn't even take mental note of how hard it is to sit upright. His mind is consumed with the thought of what would happen to him if he jumped out of the plane without a parachute. Now let's compare these two men. The first man 
His motive for putting on the parachute was solely focused upon improving his flight. His experience was that he was humiliated by the passengers. He became disillusioned and embittered against those who gave him the parachute. It will be a long time before he thinks about using a parachute again. But the second man, he put the parachute on with his focus, with his purpose to escape the jump to come. And because of this knowledge of what would happen to him without it, he has a deep-rooted joy and peace in his heart, knowing that he is saved from certain death. This knowledge, it gives him the ability to withstand the mockery of the other passengers. His attitude towards those who gave him the parachute is one of heartfelt gratitude. Now, listen to the message that is being taught in most churches today. The message to put on the Lord Jesus Christ because he'll give you perfect love, joy, peace in this world, fulfillment, and lasting happiness. In other words, Jesus will improve your flight. And so people respond experimenting with Christ, putting on the Savior just to see if the claims are true, just to see if Jesus makes this life any better. And what do they get? Well, exactly what the Word of God promises, temptation, tribulation, persecution, and the other passengers of life, they mock them. And so they become offended with Christ, disillusioned, embittered, and quite rightly so. These people are promised peace, happiness, and joy, and all they get is trials and humiliation. Now, the Bible teaches a different message. The Bible warns that a day is coming when all mankind is going to have to jump out of the plane. Death is coming for us all. Every one of us has an appointment with Christ. We have hope that we could be the generation to be raptured, the imminent rescue of the church, the bride of Christ. Then the dark days of the tribulation, billions will die. And then the terrible judgment that will come at the second coming. If you understand the message of the word of God, if you understand the dire warnings of prophecy, your confidence in Christ builds. Joy and peace take the place of fear, giving us the ability to know that the ride is going to get a little bit rough. But before the wrath of God is unfolded on this world, our parachute, it will take us safely home. This is why we study prophecy. This is why we find ourselves in Daniel 9. And so with our hearts focused on the truth of God's word, we see that verse 26 starts by telling us, and after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Here's how we got here. Daniel had been praying. Gabriel was sent to give Daniel this great prophecy. The Hebrew people thought in terms of periods of seven. We typically think in numbers of 10, decades, 10 years at a time. This entire prophecy is written for the Hebrew people. And the weeks literally should be translated sevens. The meaning is periods of seven years. So Daniel was being told that the Hebrew people would go through 70 of these seven-year chunks of time for a total of 490 years. The first 69 of these seven-year periods it came in two sections. First was the seven weeks of years, and then the 62 weeks of years. Remember the focus on the time markers in the text. These help us to see God's intended meaning for us to understand. From, in verse 25, 
from the order to rebuild the city of Jerusalem in 444 B.C. This was recorded in Nehemiah 2. Until, in verse 25 of Daniel, another time marker, until Christ's triumphal entry in 33 A.D. Seven weeks of years, then another 62 weeks of years. This came to an end at the moment that Christ made his entry into Jerusalem. Notice the next time marker in verse 26. After. After the triumphal entry of Christ, the Messiah would be cut off. An obvious reference to the crucifixion of Christ. The wording that Daniel used for cut off, it referred to the execution of someone who deserved the death penalty. But it was not for himself. When Christ was killed, he did it without fanfare. He did it without friends, without honor. Christ was rejected by men and treated as a criminal. He died in our place. And he cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Israel had rejected her king, and so the kingdom would have to wait. Everything he should have received as the Messiah, the king, was put on hold. That is the meaning here. The king did not receive what belonged to him as the Messiah of Israel. Four days after he was hailed by the people as the Messiah of Israel, he was murdered by the nation's leaders. And even the people who hailed him one day were just as ready to shout for his murder the next. The nation rejected the Christ. They gave him a cross instead of a crown. Take the next part of verse 26. And the people of the prince who is to come. Verse 25 talks of the Messiah, the prince. The beginning of verse 26 talks of the Messiah. But the wording here refers to someone different. It refers to someone that has not yet come. It's not the Messiah from verse 25 and the first part of verse 26. Think of what we just looked at in the first part of verse 26, the clear reference to the death of Christ. But now with the prince who is to come. The prince to come is not referred to as the Messiah. Then we get another clue of who this is by looking at the Hebrew sentence structure, and it indicates that this is someone important. This person will play a critical role in the history of all mankind. Then move on for just a second to the next phrase in our text. Shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The context, especially in verse 25, was the city of Jerusalem. Again, the reference here, this time, Jerusalem and the sanctuary, the temple, would be destroyed. But back up with me to the line right before this. And the people of the prince who is to come. It's not this coming prince who would destroy Jerusalem. It's not this coming prince who would destroy the temple. It is the people of the prince to come. They would be responsible for this destruction. Christ did not destroy his own temple, and history demonstrates that Christians did not destroy the temple. So we have further evidence that this coming prince must be someone different than the Messiah of Israel. You really get a glimpse in Daniel 9 of how just a few words of prophecy can span the ages. In verse 25, the city of Jerusalem is being rebuilt. In verse 26, the temple is being destroyed again. But notice with me, And this is a critical point, so don't miss this. In verse 26, we saw the time marker, after. 
after the 69 weeks of years, sometime after this period, the events of verse 26 would transpire. The Messiah cut off, Jerusalem and the temple destroyed. But Gabriel has not mentioned a thing about the 70th week yet, has he? People get confused on prophecy because they miss this. Do not fail to see that Gabriel does not mention anything about the 70th week until verse 27. Now, the 69th week is over. It ended with the triumphal entry of Christ. And so there's a gap in time between the 69th week of Daniel and the 70th week. We don't know how long it will last. God is most certainly not done with Israel. We'll see that again in verse 27. The 70th week is yet to come for Israel and the kingdom of God to follow where Israel will once again be center stage in the program of God. The church of Christ is never mentioned once in the Old Testament, but that does not mean it was not a part of the plan of God from the beginning. I would argue that right here in Daniel 9, Verse 26 is God prophetically telling us that a gap in time would exist, that a period of time would exist that would allow for the church age. After the first 69 weeks of years, when Christ entered into Jerusalem, at that point, the prophetical clock stopped and the clock does not start moving again. Here in Daniel, with the 70th week until verse 27, We're not adding a gap to the text. It's there. God put it there. If words have meaning and God communicated to us with words, and if we are expected to understand the meaning of his prophecy using the normal rules of language, of grammar, then there is a gap in this text. Because in a moment, we're going to look at the destruction of the temple in the city of Jerusalem. And there is no way that this happened in the 70th week of Daniel. Because verse 26, it teaches us this would happen after the triumphal entry of Christ. The temple was destroyed almost 40 years later after Christ came to Jerusalem, which was not the final 70th week. The time marker in verse 27 will show us this. Let's make our way to Luke 19. We jumped into this text last time when we were looking at the triumphal entry of Christ. The people were rejoicing and saying the words of Psalm 118, the Messianic Psalm. When the Pharisees understood what was happening, they told Jesus to rebuke his disciples. And his response in verse 40 of Luke 19 was that if the people didn't worship him, the stones would cry out in praise. Pick it up in verse 41. Now, as he drew near, He saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus wept. The king of Israel had come to his people, but they didn't recognize their king. His kingdom would be delayed. Let's move over to Ephesians chapter 3. We've been looking at this 490 year plan of God for the nation of Israel. 
God has a plan for Israel, but God is a multitasker. He also has a plan for the earth, the angels, and the church. And even though it was not spelled out in the Old Testament that there would be a church age, it is allowed for in the text of Daniel 9. Now in Ephesians 3, Paul lists out the revelation of the church. Verse 1, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. This is the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul was writing of the dispensation of the grace of God. Dispensation, stewardship, administration. Paul is talking about the church age. This new dispensation of God, this new way that God was interacting with man. And notice what Paul says in the first part of verse 3. How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Revelation in verse 3. God was revealing something to the Apostle Paul. Mystery. Something new. Something that had never been revealed to mankind before. God knew that Israel would reject the Messiah. The church is not plan B. The church was always a part of the plan of God. For this time, when Israel has been set on the back burner, the Lord revealed his plan for the church of Jesus Christ through the Apostle Paul. Verse 4, by which, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Again, the teaching of the church, this teaching, verse 5 tells us, was not made known to the sons of men in other ages. But this came, this was revealed by the Spirit to his apostles and prophets. Israel and the church two distinct groups in the program of God. Verse 6, still here in Ephesians, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. He's talking about the church. And Paul says, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Watch this part. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. Fellowship of the mystery. Same wording from verse 2. Dispensation. The dispensation of this mystery, this plan of God for Jews and Gentiles united in the body of Christ, which, last part of verse 9, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. God was not surprised when Israel rejected the Messiah. He wasn't sitting around wondering what to do next. The church of Christ was his plan all along. And even though the church is not predicted in the Old Testament, the New Testament is God giving us the rest of the story. Let's head back to Daniel 9 
And remember the teaching. When Christ entered Jerusalem, the 69th week ended, after which Christ was crucified. And then what happened in 70 AD, just as this prophecy foretold? The Roman armies completely destroyed Jerusalem and the temple while putting down the Jewish revolt. We have a historical fulfillment, certainly with some foreshadowing of the future, but it tells us then that the people of the prince to come, they must be the Roman people because the Roman armies destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. Now we'll come back to this prince in verse 27. But for now, just recognize the people are the Romans, the Roman legions. But it is not that the coming prince destroyed the city. Key point. The text tells us that it was the people of the prince to come, the Romans. Now, putting this all back into context, sometimes I think about Daniel. Daniel wanted the temple to be rebuilt. Gabriel had told him that this would all start with the decree to rebuild the city. Daniel got more of an answer to his prayer than he ever expected. Not only would the city be rebuilt, but the Messiah would come. The Messiah would die. The temple and the city would be destroyed again. And then we are told in verse 26, the end of it shall be with a flood. Flood or overflowing is the meaning. The end of Jerusalem would be overflowing. A flood of destruction would come upon Jerusalem. It's a reference to the degree of destruction that would come upon the city. Overflowing destruction. History confirms that this is precisely what happened. The destruction done to Jerusalem was incredible. The Roman general Titus, he used four legions to bring this wave of destruction. Now, Titus actually tried to save the temple, but he failed. This is another perfect, literal, historical fulfillment of God's prophetic word. Jews were crucified by the hundreds. Hundreds of thousands of people were killed. Some say over a million. And more were marched away to slavery and to the public arenas. The Jewish struggle with Rome was also predicted in the last part of verse 26. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. The desolations simply refer to the conditions that came about for the Jewish people because of their war with Rome. And we know from the New Testament, from Luke 21, 24, that Israel in the city of David, they will continue to be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled at the end of the tribulation. Meaning even as horrible as it was when Jerusalem was destroyed and thousands were killed, the nation continued to suffer after this. Israel has been set aside. And the nation will continue to suffer as a people right up until the time when the final week of years is fulfilled, right up until the second coming of Christ, the end of the tribulation. Verse 27 in Daniel, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations, shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Verse 27 starts with the words, then he. Again, if you write in your Bible, circle this, because this is our next time marker. 
how you understand verse 27 and who you understand this person to be, it determines your entire view of God's prophetic word. Some try to say it is a reference to the Messiah, but it can't be. It must be a reference to the prince to come from verse 26. Here's why. First, grammatically, the prince to come is a closer reference. Second, the wording back in verse 26 of the prince who is to come, the wording is given in a way that shows it is introducing this person with the text having more to say. Third, inserting Christ into verse 27, it turns this verse into gibberish. The context, the flow of thought, it has all pointed to a direct, precise, literal, and historical fulfillment. To suggest that this is Christ, as many do, is to destroy the text by inserting our own beliefs into it. This is an unmistakable reference to the Antichrist. Here's some more things to consider. Think back to chapter 7, when we saw the little horn, the Antichrist would come out of the latter portion of the Roman Empire. He would arise out of some latter extension of the Roman Empire. And remember, Satan is nothing but a counterfeit. He tries to mimic the things of God. Here we see that the coming Antichrist will try to counterfeit. He will try to mimic the authority of Christ. But go back to verse 26. The wording, when it refers to the prince to come, the Hebrew actually indicates that this prince will come out of the people that destroyed Jerusalem. Now, the English may give you the idea that this prince lived at the same time as the destruction in Jerusalem, but it really is saying out of the Roman people, this prince will come, the revived Roman Empire. In verse 26, the people had come, but the prince had not. And if you study this entire passage, notice how precise the timing was of the Messiah, but not so with the second prince, indicating to us this is not the Messiah. This is not the same as verse 25. Now we are looking at the future prince of Rome referred to in chapter 7 as the little horn. And the New Testament, it confirms that this man will appear on the scene before the second coming of Christ in Matthew 24, 15. This was the teaching of Christ. So then in verse 27, the Antichrist will confirm a covenant with many for one week, still referring to a week of years. Seven years, the tribulation. This will be the final week in the program of God. Not for the church, for Israel. At this point, the church will no longer be center stage. After the rapture, Israel will take center stage once again to fulfill this final week of prophetical years. When the Antichrist enters into this covenant, then the 70th week begins and the prophetical clock, it starts ticking again. The Antichrist is the king that rises up in Daniel 7 out of the revived Roman Empire. He will set up a covenant with the Jewish people referred to here in verse 27 as the many. This covenant will be for a period of seven years. Now, why will this covenant be needed? What will bring about the need for this peace treaty? The answer lies in Ezekiel 38 and 39 with the battle of Gog and Magog. I believe the timing of scripture indicates this massive battle will take place after the rapture, but before the tribulation. A northern alliance will form. This would be the modern countries of Russia, 
the Ukraine. Other countries from the south will join them, modern Iran, Sudan, Libya, Turkey, and Syria. These countries will invade Israel. Listen to verse 16 of Ezekiel 38, still speaking of this battle after the rapture, but before the tribulation. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you, O Gog, before their eyes. All these nations will come against Israel. You can see some of the bad actors already from those countries just looking for an excuse to invade Israel. But when these countries attack the Western Alliance, which will be led by the Antichrist, they will protest. Listen to Daniel 11:44. We'll get to this verse in our coming studies. Referring to the Antichrist when he learns of these countries invading Israel. But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. Keep track of what will happen. The Northern Alliance, along with some of the Islamic states, they will invade Israel. The Antichrist and the Western Alliance will protest. And then Ezekiel goes on to tell us that God will supernaturally intervene. God will defeat the Northern Alliance. The Antichrist will take credit for protecting Israel, giving him a platform for taking over the world. And this is when he will sign the peace treaty with Israel. This will be the start of the tribulation. Israel will enjoy peace for the first three and a half years. Daniel tells us in the middle of these seven years, three and a half years into this covenant, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Now, in order for there to be sacrifices, there needs to be a temple. Right now, the Muslims have the Dome of the Rock where they worship on the exact site of the temple. The temple will be rebuilt. The sacrifices will start again. And then the Antichrist will break the peace halfway through the tribulation. Now, Matthew also recorded this coming time. Make your way to Matthew 24 before we close. The teaching of Christ from the Olivet Discourse is before us. Now, people get confused in this text because they try to fit the rapture into the Olivet Discourse. But the subject is the tribulation and then the second coming of Christ. Matthew 24, verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, holy place here, referring to the temple, verse 16. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. The tribulation is the entire seven years. The great tribulation, it starts at the midway point when the abomination of desolation begins in the temple. Notice how this fits with our text back in Daniel 9. On the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. 
abominations, things that are detestable, the detestable false worship and idolatry that will come. Remember from our earlier studies that Antiochus Epiphanes foreshadowed the Antichrist. And by looking at his life, you can see some of the things that will come with the Antichrist. Antiochus forbid the burnt offerings and the sacrifices in the temple. Then he set up what was called the abomination of desolation upon the altar. He dedicated the temple to Zeus and set up a statue, an altar, in the temple. The Antichrist will pose as God. He will declare himself to be God, seeking the worship of God. He will pose as the Prince of Peace. He will defy the temple, much as Antiochus did many years before. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul declared that the Antichrist will oppose and exalt himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped and sit as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Daniel was telling us that this abomination will spread and make the condition for the people of Israel desolate. The influence of what the Antichrist will do in the temple will affect the entire nation of Israel. Revelation 13 confirms this, where we learn that the people of the world, they will worship him. The false prophet will set up an image of the Antichrist, and those who have received the mark of the beast will worship. And then we read in Daniel, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. The end, or consummation, is the end of the last half of this seven-year period. The end will come when the beast and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire at the second coming of Christ. Now, the vision ends with us thinking back to the suffering that happened at the hands of the Romans and with us thinking forward to the coming wrath of God unfolded upon the earth. Neville Chamberlain the Prime Minister of Britain before World War II. He knew that the country was still weary from the First World War. He wanted to avoid a war at all costs, but Hitler was plotting and planning to take over Europe. Chamberlain did not want Britain to have to confront Hitler and his army. And so in September of 1938, he reached an agreement with Hitler. The result is known as the Munich Pact. Italy and France, they joined with Britain in agreeing to surrender parts of Czechoslovakia to Germany in return for Hitler's agreement not to invade any other European countries. Chamberlain held a printed agreement and waved it confidently as he stepped off the plane back in Britain. In this printed statement, it vowed that the people desired to never go to war again and that they would work together to bring peace to Europe. And after he read the statement, Chamberlain went on to say, My good friends, for the second time in our history, a British prime minister has returned from Germany bringing peace with honor. I believe it is peace for our time. While Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain and most of the other British politicians believed that Hitler could be appeased, one man carried the voice of reason. Winston Churchill, he warned the people even though he was labeled as an alarmist. Churchill said he was desperate. He was convinced it was a matter of life and death. 
But the people would not heed the warning, and so he persisted. In a speech to the House of Commons, he rebuked Chamberlain for signing the pact with Hitler and said, You are given the choice between war and dishonor. You chose dishonor, and you will have war. Hitler ignored the Munich Pact, taking most of Czechoslovakia, invading Poland, and less than a year after Churchill rebuked Chamberlain, Britain was at war with Germany. One of the lessons that history, one of the lessons that the Word of God continues to teach us is that evil does not compromise. It is relentless. And there continues to be a fundamental misunderstanding today of both the nature and the reality of evil. The spirit of the Antichrist is present in this world, 1 John 4. When you buy into the illusion that this type of evil can be reasoned with and that agreements, peace treaties can be signed and enforced to usher in peace in this world, you are believing the lie that comes directly from the pits of hell. Recognize evil for what it is. Recognize the plan that Satan has for this world and that every day brings us one step closer to the reality of the man of sin taking over the world. Evil does not compromise. Lasting peace will not come in this world until the Prince of Peace comes and ushers in his kingdom. But the counterfeit, the Antichrist, will promise peace to a war-torn world, and so, believers, we stand on the rock that is Jesus Christ, knowing that his peace can live within. We look to the eternal reign of Christ when the world is filled with the love and knowledge of Christ. And we allow his peace to guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus, no matter what this dark and desperate world may throw at us. Would you recommend a book on church history, the end times, the gospel, commentaries, or a book on how to study the Bible? We get asked this a lot, and so I thought it would be helpful to have an Amazon store with a list of books that have helped me in my own faith. Actually, we opened two, one for Amazon Kindle and one for good old-fashioned hardcover and softcover books. We're adding books every week And if you buy them through either one of our Amazon stores, we get a little bit to help us keep the lights on and pay the bills. Just visit our webpage, returntotheword.com. Hit the Books tab, and under the menu, both our Amazon store and our Amazon Kindle store will show up. We appreciate your support. You can find out more on returntotheword.com. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. 
thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.